All right, welcome today to uh, Romans. This is Romans class number seven, and we're in Romans chapter three. And I think we'll try to get through verse number one through eight today. I think we can cover that much, and I think that's about as much as I want to cover in this particular class. And we'll be staying right here in the chapter. We might go over to Second uh, Peter chapter one. Second Peter chapter one says that the prophecy of the scripture he said it's of no private interpretation he said but but holy men of old spake as they were moved by the holy ghost and so i've quoted it to you so now i don't even think we'll have to go over uh but that's very relevant for this first uh, portion of the scripture in chapter two he spoke about the uncircumcision which is the gentile and the circumcision which is of course the jew and in chapter 3, he begins talking about that. And he says, what advantage then hath the Jew or what profit is there of circumcision? Now, if God is all finished with the Jew, if he's no longer going to deal with Israel, which the book of Romans proves very clearly that God is going to save Israel. But if God is not going to save Israel, if God's all done with Israel, there's no point in Paul writing this at all. Uh, if God is done with the if, with the Israel uh, with the Israelites, the Israelites have no advantage. But the Israelites clearly do still have some advantage and some hope, because Paul says, "What advantage then hath the Jew? Hath, h a t h, hath." That's present tense. That's firmly present tense because of its uh, special use. Hath. Uh, there's no way to get around that. Uh, uh, the fact that it is a present tense. If you read it tomorrow, it'll be present tense. If you read it two years from now, it'll be present tense. So it's a very strong, very firm uh, statement of the present tense advantage that the Jew still uh, retains. So verse 2, what advantage do they have? He says, much every way, chiefly because that unto them were committed the oracles of God. And this is my reference to Second Peter chapter 1. The holy men of old that spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost and that they pinned down the passages of Scripture, these things were committed to the Jew. They were all Jews. Uh, there has been uh, some speculation that Luke might have been written by a Gentile, but I tend to uh, I tend to move away from that. I tend to believe that Luke was in fact a Jew because the oracles of God, the the mouthpiece of God, is the Jew, and so he says much every way, chiefly because that unto them were committed the oracles of God. The descendants of Abraham have the mandate of delivering God's word not only to the nation of Israel but to the world as you and I have it today so you know the book of Mormon has definitely has no the book of Mormon definitely has no power on it it has no authority because it wasn't given through God's mouthpiece it was given by a false prophet uh, if you must be a Jew in order to be a prophet, then if you're not a Jew, you are a false prophet. So you can you can discount the uh, you can discount the Book of Mormon. You can discount the the Quran. You can discount any word that uh, supposes to be from God. 
You can discount any book that a man proposes comes from God. You can discount it, especially if you know that it does not come through the Jew. What advantage then hath the Jew, or what profit is there of circumcision? Much every way, chiefly because that unto them were committed the oracles of God. That's a pretty good advantage. For what if some did not believe? Some of the Jews, he says. Now, some of the Jews didn't believe. Many of the Jews did not believe that Jesus was the Christ, that Jesus was the Savior. He says, for what if some did not believe? That's a great advantage for them to have the oracles of God. It would seem that if the Jews didn't believe on him and God used them to author the scriptures, then it seems like that they would have recognized him when he came. But they did not recognize him when he came because their foolish hearts were darkened, their minds were blinded, because they loved their traditions more than they loved the word that God had given them. Many people suffered from that, not only the Jews. For what if some did not believe? Some of these people that God gave his word to, what, if God gave it to them, uh, what about the fact that they didn't believe on them? That's a very relevant question, and that question has been asked many times. For what if some did not believe? Shall their unbelief make the faith of God without effect? Because the Jews did not believe, does that, does that hurt the validity of our faith in God? And he says, uh, God forbid, yea, let God be true, but every man a liar, as it is written, that thou mightest be justified in thy sayings and mightest overcome when thou art judged. But if our righteousness commend the righteousness of God... Pardon me. But if our unrighteousness commend the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unrighteous who taketh vengeance? Now, this is almost like a proverb. Verse 1 through 8 is almost like a proverb. You read back in the book of Proverbs and he skips subjects every verse or every couple of verses. And so here you've got the same thing. For what if some did not believe? Shall their unbelief make the faith of God without effect? God forbid. Yea, let God be true, but every man a liar, as it is written, that thou mightest be justified in thy sayings, and mightest overcome when thou art judged. So God gave us his word, and men's responsibility is to believe it, and man's circumstance might be that he doesn't believe it from generation to generation. We can see very clear illustrations in the Bible that even the men that God gave his word to, even after God had caused them to pin down a portion of scripture or do a great and mighty work, their faith was often, uh, their faith often went into relapse and they had episodes, negative episodes or unfaithful episodes in their life when at some point God had dealt with them and caused great victories uh, to be wrought by their hands. And men are just fallible that way. So he's saying, let God be true and every man a liar. When God gives his word, let that be true. Let the word be true. Let the revelation be true. If a man preaches and he preaches good things and right things, but he's faulty and fallible, let God be true even though the man is a liar. Let God be true, but every man a liar. Every man is fallible, even God's man. And that's a sad thing, but it's a true thing. And it is very, it's a very frustrating thing, but it is a true thing. 
And I'm, don't, I'm not just saying that it's frustrating for you to see somebody preach and then see some of their fallibilities. I'm not talking about that kind of frustration. I'm talking about like Paul in Romans chapter 7, like myself. Paul says that the things that he allows, he does not do. The things that he doesn't allow, he does. He's calling himself a hypocrite and he's saying, oh, wretched man that I am. He's frustrated with himself. It's frustrating to me when God shows me and God teaches me and God allows me to preach. And then I mess stuff up in my own life. It's a very frustrating thing. But let God be true and every man a liar. And so that he says this is the thing about it is God uses fallible men to produce infallible scripture so that God might be justified in his sayings and that God might use these things to judge men. <coughs> Excuse me. How could God judge us? Uh, of course, he could run over us. God being powerful, he could just judge us and run over us and destroy us. He could be justified in that because we're his creation. But God does things righteously and God, God is a God of justice and he gives man the opportunity. There is, there is a great, uh, there is a great lesson in God's justice and God's mercy and God's grace in this little passage of scripture here to where he says, let God be true, but every man a liar that means that God would be graceful enough to use sinful man, lying man, uh, unjust man to be a part of pinning down the scripture and getting it right so that God in turn might judge us and might judge us justly in that I gave you the truth. I showed you the truth. I explained the truth to you. And so now I'm justified when I judge you because you did know the truth. This is a very great thing in, in, in the issue of Bible preservation. Those that adhere the least, those that follow the least in God's principles, in God's morals, in God's what we call convictions. Those that are least interested in those things are also the least interested in justice and judgment. Don't judge me. Don't judge this. Don't judge that. Let's just love one another and stay in unity. That is of the devil uh, because a man must judge himself. Judgment must begin at the house of God. And God has given us, even though we are fallible men, God has given us a just record of his morals, of his principles, of his own convictions. And so this is a very great passage on God's justice and on his grace as well. Thank God that he would use fallible men to give us a record of his expectations of us. Then in verse number five, but if our unrighteousness commend the righteousness of God, what shall we say? So if our, if our unrighteousness shows how good and how great that God is, if, if God gives us a record of his principles and our principles compared to his principles show that we are not on his level, shouldn't God just, uh, shouldn't God just overlook that? 
Uh, wouldn't it mean that God is unrighteous if he took vengeance on us being helpless and weak? But he says this, he said, I speak as a man because he didn't want to say something uh, against the, the righteousness of God. He says, is God unrighteous who taketh vengeance? I speak as a man. He's saying, I'm saying this like a regular, uh, degenerate, uh, unregenerate, lost man would say. God's so great, and if me doing all these bad things... Uh, magnifies his goodness and his righteousness then uh, isn't he unrighteous for for taking vengeance on faulty men if we could live right if we could do everything right then he would have justification to judge me but we're so weak but that's not the case God used God was able to use unjust man to produce an infallible record of God's principles, God's expectations, God's deliverances, God's mercies, God's grace, so that even an un, if an un, if an if a fallible man could produce it, then a fallible man could follow it to repentance, he could follow it to forgiveness, he could follow it back in to God's provision for man's righteousness and unrighteousness. And so it's a very it's a very uh, it's a very strong passage of scripture he says uh, is God unrighteous who taketh vengeance I speak as a man God forbid for then how shall God judge the world and I think I've already explained that well enough uh, perhaps if there's any questions about that we'll go back and revisit this but I believe that's a very good explanation of what this passage of scripture is trying to say and he'll say it again in verse 7 and 8 so for if the truth of God hath more abounded through my lie unto his glory. If I go out and tell a lie and that's and that is set over against God's truth, so much so that God's truth fully reveals my lies, my my uh, falsehoods, my, my failures, my sins. If he's saying that my uh, my lack of verity, my lack of truthfulness, my lack of righteousness. He says, if that magnifies God's righteousness, if God's truth has abounded through my lie, he says, why yet am I also judged as a sinner? And not rather, as we be slanderously reported, and some, and as some affirm that we say, let us do evil that good may come whose damnation is just. He said that's a bad, that's a bad way of looking at things. Well, if, uh, if we tell falsehoods and that magnifies God's truth, or if our sins and our unrighteousness magnifies the fact that God is good and right and just, he says, so then should we not just do evil? Shouldn't we just do bad things so God gets more... Uh, God gets more glory or or it magnifies the fact that God is so good and so great. He says a man that thinks that way uh, is is going to be damned and he's going to deserve every bit of that damnation. Well, what he's talking about here is man's ways, man's methods of justifying 
not just being sinful, but staying in their sinful condition. And so he wants Paul, before he even begins to deal with the law and the law's effect on, on repentance and salvation and different things like that, he wants to clear up man's arguments. Because he's about to say, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And he don't want somebody to come back and say, well, if we're all sinners and that magnifies God's righteousness, then isn't God being a little bit senseless by judging us? And that's all answered by the fact that, you know, if we're all sinful, then what's the use in judging us? I mean, you judge us, you may as well just go ahead and kill us or just let us keep uh, sinning and overlook our sin because that makes you look better anyway. Paul is trying to head that off at the past because it's not just that we have sinned and that God is righteous, but God has made an atonement to wash away our sins. And that's the, it's not just we're all sinners. It's not just the fact that Jesus died for us. It's the fact that Jesus died for us uh, for a purpose because he wants to redeem us from our condition, not leave us in it. In other words, God is not just trying to get glory for himself. He deserves glory. He deserves to be magnified. But God is not, not just trying to establish his position. He is trying to redeem us from our position. And so before he start, starts talking about the law and redemption or any of these other things that we'll talk about through Romans 3, 4, 5, and 6, he wants to make sure that man isn't trying to, to um, use his own logic or his own wisdom. He's not trying to use the wisdom of man to, to negate the gospel of God, which is exactly what agnostics do, philosophers do, uh, all these people are just are just philosophers trying to outwit the word of God, and that's that's just not going to be uh, that's not going to be uh, that's not going to be man's justification for not receiving the truth. It's not going to be it's, God's not going to look at that and say, "Well, that's a good way of looking at it." You know, enter in to, to my joy. He's not going to do that at all. He's going to hold. All of men, just as he said in chapter 2, he's going to hold all men accountable to what he has done for them in the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, maybe you'll need to go back. It's, uh, I think we're going to leave this class here at about 18 minutes. So you'll have really time to go back and listen to this little portion of scripture verse 1 through 8 a couple of times in order to wrap your mind around it it's a little bit difficult uh, difficult to wrap your mind around it's a little bit difficult to explain because it's a it's a it's a little bit of a concept there but you can get your mind around that and it'll make a lot of sense to you after I, after you listen to it maybe you've already got it on the first go around and, but if you're having a little bit of trouble with what was said in verse 1 through 8, just listen to it a couple of times and definitely pray about it and read it for yourself. And God will definitely show you what he's trying to say there. All right, we'll see you next time.